All right. Good evening, church. It's a joy to be able to open God's Word with you all again. Um, to continue, uh, Pastor Mark's theme for this uh, series is uh, Christ's form in you. Um, as we look at the attributes of Christ and, and the ways that we can grow to be more like Him. So the passage we'll be looking at tonight is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Our focus is mainly on one verse, but we will read the whole passage for the context. Uh, so please turn with me to Luke, chapter 23, verses 26 to 43. Luke 23, verses 26 to 43. It reads, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to their mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to, put, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear God. Excuse me. Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. So this is a familiar passage to many. It is an account of Jesus' last moments of life on earth as he was delivered over to be crucified. Let us consider all that Jesus would have been experiencing and, and feeling at this moment. So he had just witnessed one of his closest friends, Peter, deny him. Then Jesus watched the people of Israel choosing to release Barabbas, who was a violent criminal, rather than releasing him. Jesus was then mocked by the soldiers. He was stripped, spit on, beaten. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They scourged him. Then they crucified him to the cross with nails piercing his hands and his feet. And as he hung there, he would have felt his weight pulling his body down, making it extremely difficult for him to breathe. As he looked down from the cross, he saw Roman soldiers gambling for his clothing, people walking by to ride at him. The religious leaders mocked him. Even the criminals who crucified him reviled him. 
This was arguably the lowest point of Jesus' life on earth. Yet it was in the midst of all of this, in the midst of excruciating physical pain, in the midst of shame, hatred, and hostility from all the people around him, Jesus prayed to his father in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In regards to this text, Spurgeon points out two extremes. He says, the unknown depths of sin, they know not what they do, and the unknown heights of mercy, Father, forgive them. So it is the latter, the mercy of Christ, that we will meditate on tonight. So before we go there, I'd like to start by considering a few things the Bible says about Jesus. First, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is eternal and existed before the creation of the universe. In fact, the Bible identifies Jesus as the creator of the universe. He says in John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Also, Colossians 1 would say, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is also the exact representation of God. It says in Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he opposed the universe by the word of his power. Colossians would say he is the, he is the image of the invisible God. Lastly, consider God's own testimony of Jesus. In all the New Testament, God spoke audibly only three times. And in two of those three times, God proclaimed that Jesus was his beloved son. At Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The third time was John 12, and although it wasn't to make the same proclamation as the other two times, God spoke in response to Jesus' prayer to him. Now, the point I'm trying to make with these verses is to show that Christ wasn't merely a man, wasn't merely a man like us. He is the beloved son of God, who is God himself. His life is priceless. It is infinitely valuable. And yet this was the person these men crucified on the cross. The incomparable worth of Jesus Christ speaks to the magnitude of this offense. Not only did they physically crucify him, but they mocked him and shamed him. So if there were any men in all of history who we think should be condemned, if there were any who we, sh- who, who we think should be cursed and judged, if there was anyone who should not be forgiven, we would think it ought to be these men. The men who nailed the Son of God to the cross, the ones who spit on him, who mocked him, reviled him, the ones who shamed him. And we would think Jesus' last words on the cross would be ones of judgment, and condemnation. He should have rained down fire and brimstone on these men. But that was not the heart of Christ. Instead, as he hung on that cross, Christ looked down on these men, and in an act of mercy, he asked God, his Father, to forgive them. With his last few breaths, 
Jesus was pleading for the world's most wretched sinners. This is stunning if you consider all that Jesus had just gone through, the heartbreak, the physical pain, the shame. And in that moment, he set aside all that he was suffering, and he set his attention upon these wretched men. But actually, what's more amazing is not considering all that he had just gone through, but considering what is still to come. Right? If you recall the night before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was Christ doing? He was agonizing and pleading with his father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Christ, in his humanity, dreaded the cross. In fact, he was in so much agony and anguish that Luke said he sweated great drops of blood. And at one point, Jesus said that he was so sorrowful even to death. And we know that it wasn't so much the crucifixion that Christ was dreading, but it was the thought of having to drink the cup of God's wrath, right? To be crushed by God, as it says in Isaiah 53. The thought of being separated from the presence of his Father, whom he's always been with in perfect love and perfect relationship from eternity past. Yet moments from experiencing that, Jesus was concerned about these men, the ones directly responsible for his death. Father, forgive them is a prayer of unmatched mercy and love. So there are a few things I want to point out from this prayer, but before we go there, I'd like to define the term mercy. So mercy is a divine attribute of God's nature. Ephesians 2 says that God is rich in mercy, and other parts of the Bible say that his mercy is great. In 2 Corinthians 1, God is called the Father of mercies. So mercy is such a complex concept that several Hebrew and Greek words are often used to express all the dimensions of his meaning. So synonyms like compassion, loving kindness, favor, and steadfast love are often used to illustrate the ideas of mercy. In his book, Biblical Doctrines, John MacArthur defines mercy this way. He says, God's mercy describes him as perfectly having deep compassion for people such that he demonstrates benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable condition, even though they do not deserve it. Another commentator defines mercy briefly as the gift of God's undeserved kindness and compassion. So as we look at Jesus' prayer from the cross, we can see his compassion for these men as he prayed for their forgiveness, even though they are undeserving of it. So with that, there are two points I'd like to consider tonight. First, Christ modeled here for us what it looks like to love your enemies. So when Jesus taught in Luke 27, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me, Luke 6, verses 27, to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, he wasn't just teaching a list of virtues that sound good, but is impossible for anyone to follow, nor was he being like a tyrant king who imposes harsh laws on his subjects, but he himself doesn't live by them. No, Jesus perfectly lived out what he taught his disciples. He shows that to love your enemies doesn't just mean to be neutral towards them, but rather to do good, to demonstrate benevolent goodness towards them. Romans 12, 14 would say, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Jesus, the persecuted, prayed for his persecutors on the cross. And he calls us to do the same. Right? He calls us to, to pray for those who offend us, to seek their good, to desire their best interests. A few verses later in Luke 6, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expect, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus gives us a motivation here that we should be merciful because God our Father is merciful. He is kind even to the ungrateful and evil. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And don't just think that this verse is talking about the unbelieving world. Yes, that is true, but I think the full implication here is that we were all once ungrateful and evil. We were all once in open rebellion against God. And yet he was kind and merciful towards us. Therefore, as those who have received mercy from God, those who are now his children, we ought to be merciful like our Father. Christ asks another reason why we should be merciful. He says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Right? Living in this sin-cursed world, we are people who are in constant need of God's mercy. Are we not? We are quick to ask and plead for mercy, and yet we are often hesitant to offer it. One last thought on mercy before we move on. How important is mercy to God? How important is it? In Matthew 9, as Jesus was having a meal with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees saw this and asked his disciples why Jesus was hanging out with these type of people. These type of people. Why was he hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus essentially answered them with a quote from Hosea, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus was making the point that God cares about the heart. More important to God is what is hidden inside your heart than religious rituals and outward appearances. He desires a heart of love and mercy over external practices of piety. This is a good reminder for us because oftentimes it's easier to do the religious things like coming to church on Sundays and serving the church and serving at events, bringing people meals, doing all these things and not cultivating a heart of mercy and love towards the people we are serving. And all those things are good and necessary, but they are not pleasing to God when we do them out of obligation rather than love and mercy. We don't want to be people who honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. My second point on this prayer of forgiveness, my second point is, is, is the prayer of forgiveness that Christ prayed. It is important to know that Jesus' prayer does not mean that everyone was forgiven, unilaterally, without repentance and faith. But it does mean that Jesus was willing to forgive them. Right, consider this. If forgiveness was available for those who crucified Christ, what does that say about us when we refuse to forgive those who offend us? When we harbor bitter thoughts and feelings towards those who hurt us? 
Are any sins committed towards you worse than the sins committed towards Christ at the cross? Yet Christ prayed for his transgressors to be forgiven. When we refuse to forgive, we harbor, when we harbor animosity, are we not saying that the transgressions against us is greater than those against Christ? Rather, Ephesians 4.32 says, we ought to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Just as we have received mercy from God and, we, and have been forgiven, we ought to be merciful and forgiving towards one another. So I'll end it with this quote from John MacArthur. He says, The great irony of Calvary is that while all this scorn was being heaped on Christ, he was bearing the curse of God far worse than anything they could put on him. You think it's bad to be cursed by men? He was being cursed by God. But in taking both the curses from men and the curse from God, he provided the very atonement which makes the forgiveness he prayed for possible. What an amazing Savior we serve. All the way to the cross, Jesus was cursed and reviled by the very men whom he was going to the cross to die for, to die and make atonement for. And even to the end, he had compassion for them, and he caused us to have the same compassion for one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for that while we were your enemies, we, you did not give us the just punishment that we deserve, but instead poured it onto your beloved Son. As those who have received mercy and forgiveness, we pray that you would help us to be kind and tenderhearted towards one another, that we would be quick to forgive one another as you have forgiven us. Help us to cultivate hearts of compassion and love for the lost, even for those who offend us. In Jesus' name, amen.